Okay, let's just bow our hearts as we turn to God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the privilege of being able to come together to read and study your word. And Lord, we ask this morning once again that you reveal more of yourself to us and Lord, more of your plan and your purpose. Lord, help us to understand these things that we've been studying and how they should apply to our life. Lord, we've been speaking of this incredible grace that you have given Lord, this freedom that we now have, the liberty that we have in Jesus. Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to understand, Lord, what we should do and how we should take, Lord, each step of each day that we may live our lives in a way that is glorifying and pleasing to you. So, Father, just bless this time of study, we pray. Open our hearts and our ears and speak to us through your Holy Spirit, we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've uh, got halfway through chapter 5. Just a reminder again, the epistle to the Galatians is this epistle that Paul has written to these churches in this area of uh, what today we refer to as Turkey. Uh, And typically it's the the southern area of Galatia. Galatia covered a reasonably large portion of that land mass, as I say today is known as Turkey. But the southern part of that is where these churches are that Paul had planted. And these are the ones to which Paul is writing. So let's just have a very quick recap. Paul has planted these churches in Galatia. Lystra, Derby, Iconium, and so on. And they'd received him joyfully. Alright, it's important to understand that, to start with, everything had been wonderful. They'd really been glad when Paul had come and preached this message to them. But then, problems started. Because the legalists amongst them had started to infiltrate and started to bring their own teaching. And they were saying, well, you know, what Paul said is all good, we love it, it's great. You know, we accept Jesus, but... We've got to keep the Sabbath. We've got to be circumcised. We've got to stay under the law. And they started listing all the things that the churches that there were supposed to get involved in and do. Now, <laughs> I like this quote from Chuck Misler. He says, have you ever noticed that church strife and in fact even split-ups have their roots in some form of legalism? Think about that. I think it's quite an interesting comment. I think you'll find it to be true. Now, note that Paul's letter to Galatians is actually an instruction manual for us today as well. You know, what we read in Scripture isn't just historical. It's not just, oh, isn't that interesting that that happened back then? This is stuff that applies to us. And these things speak with incredible clarity into our own lives, our own situation, into our own church, and and so on. And we need to understand that we're in this. That it's not just some remote thing. That all of Scripture is here for our learning. And incidentally, again, that this is the book, Galatians, that sparked the Reformation with Martin Luther. So, we carry on. Paul then writes this letter to challenge the Galatian believers. Firstly, how is it that you can so quickly turn away? You know, everything had been going well. They'd received his teaching. Why now is there a problem? He says, you know, effectively, you once trusted me. What's changed? And then he makes, makes the point that you know, the law... Legalism can't save, it only condemns. When we preach the law, it brings condemnation. You know, no system of man, Paul says, will make you righteous. And if you adopt any part of the law, Paul says that Christ will profit you nothing. For the simple reason that if you adopt any part of the law, you're a debtor to the whole law. If you want to live under the law and you use that as your path to God, then you have to keep every part of the law. We've said before, There are two ways to be saved. One is through the blood of Jesus Christ. The other is by keeping the law perfectly. And no one can keep the law perfectly. The problem is we start at a disadvantage because we start with sin in our life. So we start already having lost. If you go down that road, you'll never win. See, Christ has done it all. And Paul is now saying to the Galatian believers to rejoice in this liberty that they've got. However... That now brings us to this important question. This is where we kind of got to last week. If Christ has paid for all of our sin, past, present and future, and if we've now been adopted as sons, if you remember Paul used that argument, he spoke of the way it was culturally that a child up until a certain age wasn't treated any differently than a servant. Although they maybe one day would inherit everything, until they came of age, they were really no better than a servant. But once they come of age, then they are the ones who would inherit. And, of course, 
Paul makes this argument that as believers in Jesus, that's exactly what happens. That we're given this position as sons. It's not a discriminatory thing against women. The idea is that the position, not son or daughter situation, but the position of the firstborn, whether you're male or female, is irrespective. You're given that position. But now the question, of course, is what's then to stop us living however we please? Because if Christ has paid for all of our sin, and this is a question that I was asked a little while ago by a Muslim. He said, he, he just really struggles with, with what I believe because he says, you can just do what you want. You can sin and it doesn't matter. And that's the, the challenge. And that's, of course, a, a real stumbling block to, to legalists. And that's actually part of the offense of the gospel because, you know, the gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive because it tells you that you can do nothing to earn salvation. There's nothing you can bring to add to the work that Jesus has accomplished. As we've said before, what possibly could you think or do or add that would have more value than the blood of Christ? Well, nothing. Of course, that's offensive because we all like to try and do something. The idea that we can't offer anything, that we're really just sinners, is an offense to us. Well, this brings us to really the issue of restrained liberty. Now, that's an oxymoron. That's a, a kind of a contradictory statement. Because if it's liberty, how can it be restrained? You see, liberty, the definition is that it's uh, the power of choosing, thinking and acting for oneself. Freedom from control or restriction. That's what liberty is. So the moment you put a restraint to that, you are surely making it not liberty. And yet... What Paul is speaking about, and we've seen already, as we saw last time, is Paul says, for brethren, you've been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. In other words, he's saying there's got to be restraint. So what's the answer? How do we get round this oxymoron? Well, this is our million dollar question, if you like. When is restraint not restraint? Well, the answer is given to us in this verse. But by love, serve one another. That's the answer. That's the answer to the question. The answer is when it's by choice. You see, when it comes to love, although liberty still exists, your choice means that you reject other things. But you don't do so because you have to. You do so because you choose to. When I met Joy, I made a decision to reject Every other woman, from a point of view of, of intimate love. I haven't done that because I had to. I did it because I love my wife. You know, it's whatever you can think of. When you love something, you choose to disregard other things. It's not a chore. It's not a challenge. It's not something you find hard. Recently, I bought a new guitar. Enjoy doesn't believe me, but I've told her that I've now found the one. That's it. I don't want any more. You know, I've been looking for something. I've been looking for that particular sound. And I've got it. Every time I look at it, I smile. I'm really pleased. It's just, just what I wanted. You know, and I've walked into guitar shops since. I work up in London. There's a number of guitar shops. And, you know, I look at them and I think, not interested. You see, I've got that liberty. It's not that well, actually, because of Joy, she wouldn't let me buy another one. But just that aside, I've got the liberty that I could go and buy another instrument. But I don't want one now. Because I don't believe I'll ever find anything better than what I've now got. It's just what I want. So I'm rejecting everything else because I've now got what I want. This is the whole point that Paul is making. It's by love. You see, and this is how we are to live this life as Christians. In Romans 13 to end, Paul says there, love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, you had all these legalists that were trying to keep the law. Paul is saying, well, love and through Christ, you actually fulfill the law. You end up doing the things that the law says, not because you are trying to keep the law, because you willfully choose to do those things and by the definition you therefore reject the others. In 1 John, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, John says there, He that saith he abides in him, in Christ, ought himself also so to walk even as he walks. So John is saying that 
with this liberty we have, in a sense, there has to be restraint. But then he says, brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. John goes on and tells us, and this is in 1 John 3, he says, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. As he gave us commandment. See, this is how we deal with temptation. This is how we deal with sin in our lives. You know, if you try and choose not to sin, you will fail because it's a work of the flesh. That's your effort. It's a whole kind of New Year's resolution thing. You get to the 2nd of January and it's all all of a sudden it's gone awry. You see, the law has always taught us to love thy neighbor. That's always been part of the law, but the law never gave us a way of doing it. It never made it possible because it was by our efforts and by our efforts we would always fail. So what's changed? What's different now? Well, John also writes back in 1 John 2, he says, Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. See, there was a time when we, and obviously the world, was in darkness. See, but now the light of the glorious gospel of Christ has come. Something has changed. Yeah, the law always said, love thy neighbor, but it never gave us a way of doing it. But now John is telling us that a new commandment's been given because there's been a change. Because the light has now come, there is no excuse anymore for living that old way because it's now been made possible through Jesus Christ. He says, a new commandment I give unto you. This is actually John's gospel. Jesus speaking, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Now notice what Jesus says, as I have loved you. Well, that changes everything. He says, that you also love one another. Jesus says, by this, all men shall know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. See, Jesus wasn't just saying, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. He's saying, I want you to love each other as I have loved you. Christ's love For us, it's the most powerful and wonderful demonstration of grace you will ever find. And Jesus says, that is the way that we are to love. Naturally, that's impossible. But by God's Spirit, by God putting into us something that was not there before, that becomes possible. Back in 1 John, chapter 4, verse 10, John writes, Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means payment in full for our sins. John says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. You see, grace flows from God to us. And then from us to each other. It's because of what God has done that enables us to do that which he asks us to do. And grace is simply undeserved favor. You know, we are to love others as Jesus has loved us. And sometimes there are occasions when other people are not as lovely as we'd always like them to be, but we're still told to love them. And that can be hard, that can be challenging. Yeah, but look at your life, look at yourself. And Jesus loved you as you are. We're told, and you said earlier, there was why we were yet sinners that Christ came. Christ was willing to die for you in the state that you were in. For you to love somebody else, when you realize the love that Christ has for us, it's not such a big thing. We're told again, First John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. See, it all starts with God. It's not of us, it's of God. 1 John 3.16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. He's given us a model we can understand. And he says, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So the question is, do we have a sacrificial love for each other yet? You know, certainly within a fellowship, that is the kind of love that we should have. It's the kind of love that other people will see and realize there is something very different about us. That's the love that we should have. 1 John 2. He that loves his brother abides in the light. And there is no occasion of stumbling in him. This is a really important point here. You see, love for each other keeps us in the light. If we're in the light, we'll not stumble. Effectively, John is saying that if we love each other, we'll remain in the light and we are not going to stumble. We're not going to trip up. We're not going to fall into sin. 
But the contrast is, but he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not whether he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes. You know, if we don't have love for each other, immediately we place ourselves in a position of darkness where we are liable to stumble and probably will. Because we won't know where we're going. We won't see our path. You see, and this is something that the Lord has been revealing and showing us through our Bible studies going through First John. That we need to love each other. And if we love each other, our relationship with God will be good. And of course we need to love God first and foremost. And if we love God, then our relationship with each other will be good. But if we don't love each other, our relationship with God is affected. If we stop loving God or allow something in our life that shouldn't be there, it will affect our relationship with each other. There's this kind of wonderful circle or kind of triangle really of this relationship situation. So with that, let's get into the text. Picking up from verse 15 of chapter 5 of Galatians. Paul then straight away now tackles them regarding the way they were treating each other. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. You see, the followers of the legalists and those who had remained steadfast were now biting and devouring each other, as, as Paul puts it. But let me ask you this question. Is there ever anything that's big enough to divide us? Something that, that Linda said recently, and I think it's something that's been mentioned a couple of times at some of the ladies' meetings. You know, we spend eternity together. You know, if somebody else is saved, we're going to spend eternity with them. You know, why is it we build such barriers sometimes? You know, the only thing that divides is pride. It goes right back to the the beginning, the real problem that started it all off back in the garden. It was Satan's pride. Satan wanting to be like God. That's where it all started. Not that Satan wanted to be God. We've said this already. He wasn't trying to be God. He wasn't that foolish. But Adam had been made like God. You see, Satan stands there looking at God creating this wonderful world with the other angelic beings, worshipping God, praising God. But just as we see in the, the book of Esther, just like Haman, whom would the king want to honour more than me? Effectively is the idea. But Satan's thinking that this earth has been created and given to him. And suddenly, God on day six creates man. And Satan starts to murmur with some of the angels. And eventually... Satan decides he's had enough. And he goes and tries to deceive Eve, which she does. And then obviously Adam also falls. And then Satan gains title to the earth, which is exactly what he wanted. And it's made very clear from scripture. A number of scriptures tell us that. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 and elsewhere. But for now, this earth is the domain of Satan. Pride started it all off. Pride causes division. Pride is always the thing that causes division. Unwillingness to come and humbly talk to each other. You know, Matthew 18 gives us the basic principle. If we've got a problem, talk to each other. The Bible is always the basis. It's never about me or you. It's always about what the Bible says. Let's get back to Scripture. The moment we do that, we remove pride. And Paul really is asking then these Galatians, you know, really, where is the love in their actions? You know, that's the, the real problem here. You know, and again, borrowing from Oswald Chambers, you know, we're not here to make converts to our point of view. You know, it's not about getting somebody to agree with your opinion on something. But I want to just put this little caveat in. Because back in chapter 1, Paul says this, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. See, this is the only cause for division. If somebody is preaching a gospel which is not based upon the completed work of Christ and that alone, well, that is something that will divide. There can be no compromise on that point. See, any gospel that relies on works of the flesh, i.e. something that you have to do, is an affront to God. He said that he's done it all through Christ. So now we move on and... For the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul is going to give us four contrasts. Firstly, liberty, not bondage. Under the law there was bondage, but now there's liberty. Then, the spirit, not the flesh. Then others, not self. And then God's glory, not man's approval. You know, we shouldn't be looking for, for man's approval. We should be looking for 
glorifying God in all that we do. Now it's interesting that the words flesh and spirit are each found ten times in chapter 5 and 6. And that is interesting because I just wanted to just read to you the words of J.B. Phillips. This actually comes from the Living Bible, but he says this. He says, for we naturally love to do evil things that are just the opposite from the things that the Holy Spirit tells us to do. And the good things we want to do when the Spirit has his way with us are just the opposite of our natural desires. These two forces within us are constantly fighting each other to win control over us, and our wishes are never free from their pressures. I just love that. It's just a simple, clear explanation of the battle that we are in. We'll talk more as we go through. So then, Paul carries on. He says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now this walks, first of all, it's the life of grace is to be maintained by our constant fellowship with the Holy Spirit. See, remember the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. The verb here in the Greek, um, you can see the word in Greek, but it basically the verb is the present imperative active. Now I'm no Greek scholar, but I can read what the Greek scholars say, and they tell us that this means literally to keep on walking. It's not just a once-only thing, it's not occasional, it's an every minute of every day. You see, we should depend on the indwelling Holy Spirit for guidance and for power. But notice that the instruction intends for us to be proactive. You see, it's very clear that the Spirit does not operate automatically in our hearts. He waits to be depended on. And this is because the basis of this relationship is love. Once again, we come back to this. You see, the Holy Spirit will not force us to walk with him. But if we love him, aren't we going to want to walk with him? You see, if you understand what a precious gift the Holy Spirit is, then you're going to want to walk with him. Wouldn't you want to walk with someone you love? David, after his transgression with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, having seen what had happened to King Saul, cries out to God and says, please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He realizes just how precious God's Holy Spirit is. And sadly for many Christians, they're ignorant of God's Holy Spirit. They go through their their lives each day not being aware that the Spirit that was in Christ Jesus is within us. Jesus says that he loved us and we are to love others in the same way Well, the reason it's possible is because the same Spirit that was in Christ is within us. The Holy Spirit. And He's there, ready to help us each moment of every day. See, if the Holy Spirit forced or coerced us into walking with Him, we wouldn't be counted as free moral agents. It wouldn't be our choice anymore. It wouldn't be love. But you see, now we have this liberty. And with that liberty, we have to want to choose to walk with the Holy Spirit. That's the way it should be, a relationship of love. You see, love is never the result of compulsion. You can never force somebody to love you. But the fruit of a heart that has been won, that's what love is. Interesting, there's no mention in Scripture of the sanctification of the old nature. You know, that old nature, that sinful nature that is still within us, God doesn't come and repair it. It stays there. You know, this is another thing we looked at a Bible study recently, and it's something that sometimes we kind of prefer to ignore. We like to think that now we're Christians, everything is okay. But that old nature is still there. That old nature is still as wicked and sinful as ever. You see, our heart is never cleansed. It is replaced with a new one. Again, Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. But we're told that in the book of Romans chapter 12 that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're to think differently. So while a believer will never be entirely free in this life from the evil desires that stem from that fallen human nature, we need not capitulate to them, to give in to them. But we may experience victory by the Spirit's help. The Holy Spirit is here to help us. We need to walk with him. In 1 John 3 verse 9, we're told, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for a seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Now this is a, a verse that can be confusing, because if you look at the beginning of John's first letter, we're told that we do sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, John says. But now he says, whoever's born of God doesn't commit sin. So on one hand he's saying you do sin, then he's saying you don't sin. How does that work? Well, simply because we need to understand that there is the old nature, the old life, the old sinful nature that's in us. That nature will sin. Can't help it. This is part of its habit. It's part of what it does. But the new nature that God has placed within us, the new life, when we are born again, that cannot sin. Why? Because it is of God. It cannot sin. And so now we're in a situation that you start to understand why we're told we should not sow to the flesh, but sow to the spirit. You see, when we are born again, a new life begins in us. And we need to nurture and feed that life. Reading the Bible, praying, fellowshipping, all of those things. It is that life that loves God and loves the things of God. And loves fellowship with the people of God. When a Christian willingly yields to the Spirit's control, we have the promise that we will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Although that sinful nature is there. We're told in Isaiah that he gives power to the faint and to them that have no might he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But he doesn't say that we will remain downcast. It doesn't say that we will be defeated because we have this promise. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's the promise we have when we turn our eyes upon Jesus. In James 4 verse 7 and 8, we're told there, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We've got a choice. We've got this liberty. Verse 17, we carry on. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. You see, people in the world think they're free. But really they're just slaves to the flesh. And they're powerless to break free from the things that they're into. You know, they think they have control. And yes, some people can diet and so on, and they may have success in that, and they may be able to do certain things, but they are never free from the power of sin, and they will never be able to break free from the power of sin. The children of God, on the other hand, have been liberated, and now we have the freedom to choose. And we can choose the flesh, of course, and be miserable. You know, you'll never find a Christian that's sinning that is not miserable. You may have experienced it yourself when you've had moments, and certainly I've been there, where I'm not in the place where I should have been with God. I can get really grumpy. And you just know that it's not right. And praise God, because of his spirit being so loving and gentle, we're told it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So we can choose the flesh. We've got this freedom. We can choose the flesh if we want to. But we'll be miserable. Or we can walk in the spirit and know the abundant life that Jesus has promised to his own. See, we've got a choice. People in the world haven't. We have. We've got this liberty. But by the way, there is no middle ground. Romans 6, 16 says this. Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. You've got a choice, one way or the other. My question then, why did Jesus establish two ordinances? Now we touched on this earlier on. Baptism and communion. Those two things Jesus established that we should do as Christians. Nothing else. Of course, we should fellowship, we should pray, you know, with all those kind of things. We understand that. But the two things that we should do, baptism and communion. Why? Well, baptism is to remind us that we've died to the old life and that we're now risen with Christ. This is really a memory jogger for us. Communion to remind us that it's the love of Christ that constrains us. Because of what he did for us. He said, baptism, we're told in Colossians 3, 1 to 3, if you be then risen with Christ, so if you've died to that life and risen again, if you've been baptized, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth, for you are dead. That's what the whole purpose of baptism is about, dying to the old life. For you are you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Communion. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21 to 23, we read, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. 
You cannot be partaker of the Lord's table and the table of devils. You can't be into things of the world and then come and celebrate communion. That's why we've got communion. And that's why it's a continual reminder. It's like a, a little poke every time we have communion to remind us that Jesus shed his blood and has given us a new life so that we'd walk with him. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, says Paul here. But all things are not expedient. All things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. And Paul is saying, you know, look, go out, whatever you want. You're free. Christ has set you free. Everything in the shop is available. But what is it that you love? Because if you love Jesus, you're not having to turn away from those things and yet you still want them. You're turning away because you just don't want them. Because Christ is better than anything. And this is what Paul tells us, that even though he'd been so into the law and everything else, he now counted all of that as rubbish compared to the knowledge of knowing Jesus. See, this is the way we should be living. You know, it's not about what we give up. It's what we're gaining. It's what we're getting by turning to Christ and walking with him. And then we're told, but if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. You know, there is no law now. If you're walking under the Spirit, you're free. And what a wonderful freedom this is. And now Paul gives us this list. He says, the works of the flesh, in case you need reminding, are manifest. They're clear. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Just very quickly go through these. I don't want to spend a lot of time on these because you're experts at this already. Because we all know what the flesh life can do. We all know what it's like. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lasciviousness. We've got these kind of groups that it's broken down into seemingly, kind of four groups. The first group then, all these things. Adultery is simply unfaithfulness within a marriage kind of context. Fornication, the word in Greek is pornea, is of course where we get the word pornography and so on, but it really refers to any other sexual sin. Any sexual sin outside of marriage or whatever. Any sexual sin whatsoever. Uncleanness really has to do with immoral behavior and thought. That's the implication of the Greek word that's there. Lasciviousness is really shamelessness. Oh, don't we see so much of that? These pride marches. People are so shameless about the things that they do. Almost poking fun at God and God's word. Why are these sexual sins listed first? Interesting question. We've got this list. These are the first ones that Paul mentions. Well, I think the reason is because we're told this. Every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. What, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I believe that's why Paul puts that list first. The second list, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, and variance. Now, idolatry, quite simply, we're familiar with this, we see it so often in scripture, but really it's the worship of false gods. But that can apply quite easily to us today, allowing other things to become more important than God. Witchcraft, the Greek word is pharmakia. It's really the way that we get pharmacy from, and it really has this implication of drugs. And it's the whole root of this is really the idea of altered states of consciousness. Dealing with other realms, in a sense. And of course, isn't that what witchcraft is in our understanding? Dealing with the supernatural, the paranormal, and so on. And isn't that what drugs do? Move you into an altered states of consciousness. And you know how many people have taken drugs, have had all sorts of hallucinations, and so on? That's... What witchcraft is. Hatred here, really the implication is hostility, not towards other people, but towards God. Variance is dissension, it's an act of will. Really, this second list all has to do with defiance against God. And all of these things will be seen in abundance during the tribulation as men recognize that the judgment that is coming upon them is from God. But they're still going to choose to rebel against him. Our third list, emulations, wrath, 
strife, seditions, and heresies. Emulation is really speaking about jealousy. Now this again, this is kind of now down to the personal level, aimed at each other, being jealous of someone else. Wrath, speaking of outbursts of temper, getting cross with each other. We see that at traffic lights and things, don't we, very often. Strife, seeking to put others down. That's the idea, really, that's, that's there. Seditions, it's sowing intentional discord. Oh, well, aren't there people that do that? And that they love just to get in and try and cause problems. Heresies, not heresies in the way that we tend to think of the word in terms of things that contradict God's word or a different teaching, but talking really about factions, or we would today speak of cliques. So all of this group have to do with unseen attitudes that we have toward other people. And of course they all come from within, from the heart, that wicked heart. Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and incurably wicked, Jeremiah 17.9. Our final group, envyings, murder, drunkenness, revelings. Envyings, really the intent looking at the Greek and looking at these commentaries, is spiteful intent to another. So it's not just envying that somebody has something that we don't, but it's actually more than that. It's taking it a step further. It's real spiteful intent, you know, wishing ill to other people. Murder, of course, well, you know, that's where we see things go wrong right at the beginning in the book of Genesis. It's a devaluing of life, isn't it? Drunkenness is just the abuse of the flesh and the mind. And revelings is wantonness, it's no control. You see, the fourth and final group speak of the total depravity of man. I'm not speaking in a kind of a Calvinistic sense, but just in the way that our sinful nature is so deprived. And of course, this is how low humanity, which was created originally in the image and the likeness of God, can sink as a result of sin. It's interesting, isn't it? You look at this now, I don't know about you, but it makes you feel sick thinking about these things. And yet, these are the things that Paul says, be careful. Because you can stumble and fall into these things. Again, this group that we're looking at, the final group, is the state that the real, really the world had got into in the days of Noah, before the flood came. And we're told, of course, that as it was in the days of Noah... So it's going to be in the days of the Son of Man. And really, isn't that list just what we see around us today in the world? You know, even, I'm not particularly into social media, but all these trolls, I think, I mean, I thought you used to think trolls were something that lived under a bridge. In, you know, apparently they're not now. They're, they're things on the internet. You know, but people can be really, really cruel and horrible to other people. And we see all that going on. Now notice that Paul says, and such like. Now, it really implies that it's not an exhaustive list, it's just simply representative. That there are other things as well. But he gives us some key points there. Notice again, he says there, such like, of things I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now this, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Of course it applies to the world, they're not going to inherit anything of God. But what is the implication to a believer who chooses to live like this. Because bear in mind, we are free. We have this liberty to choose how we want to live. Our sin has been paid for on the cross. Jesus cried out to tell us that paid in full. Well, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, we'll get there next week. It says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that he shall also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. There are consequences. We'll talk more next week about this. But you know, entrance to the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom are not the same thing. Inheritance in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is a reward for faithfulness. In the Old Testament, I'll give you some examples. Esau and Reuben, they both lost their inheritance. The prodigal son in the New Testament blew his inheritance, didn't he? But interestingly, notice, both with Esau, Reuben, and also in the New Testament with the prodigal son, they never lose their sonship. It's an important point. You see, this is not an issue of salvation. You see, you cannot earn, and therefore you cannot forfeit your salvation. It's a gift. So this is an issue of rewards. And we'll talk more about this 
But 2 Corinthians 5.10, 1 Corinthians 3, particularly 1 Corinthians 3 gives us a good list. Matthew 6.20 talks about our treasure in heaven. I'll give you just one scripture for now though. 2 John verse 8 says, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought or which we've worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. So we have a choice how we live our lives. We can live according to the flesh, but in the light of eternity... We're going to regret that. And even now, it's not going to help us. We'll be miserable. There'll be complications. There'll be problems. If, of course, we choose to walk in the Spirit and not gratify those desires, what a wonderful, abundant life is promised. And now we've given this wonderful list. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there's no law. No boundaries, no barriers. See, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, notice this. The contrast, of course, between the works, plural, of the flesh versus the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. Now, we're told the fruit of the Spirit is. The word fruit is singular, indicating that these qualities constitute a unity, all of which should be found in a believer who lives walking with the Spirit. You see, you can't just say, well, uh, I'm going to have, I think, uh, meekness. Yeah, I'll have that one, and I'll have uh, goodness. Uh, And I'm not sure, patience and uh, long-suffering, don't like that one. And uh, love is a bit too tricky. So it doesn't work that way. The fruit of the Spirit is all of this. This is the whole thing. If you are a believer, if the Holy Spirit is operating in your life, all of those things should be evident. All of them. See, it's important to observe that the fruit here described is not produced by the believer, but by the Holy Spirit working through a Christian who is in vital union, connected with Christ. There's three groups, by the way. You've got that personal fruit, the love, joy, and peace the outreaching things, things that affect other people, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, particularly the way we are to other people, and the up-reaching fruit, our relationship with God very much, faith, meekness, and temperance. All of these things that the Lord works in us through his Spirit. But of course, notice that love is first on that list, because it's the foundation, as we've been seeing. Joy is a deep and abiding inner rejoicing, which was promise to those that abide in Christ. It doesn't depend on circumstances because it rests in God's sovereign control of all things. You see, our joy when we are walking with the Lord is not shaken by what happens because we know that God is in complete control. We're told in Nehemiah 8 verse 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, speaking of peace, oh, this is the peace that we're told again is the gift of Christ in John 14 verse 27. Jesus said he would give us his peace. And it's an inner repose and quietness, even in the face of adverse circumstances. And we're told in Philippians 4, 7, that it defies human understanding. It's a peace that passes understanding. The world doesn't understand it. The second group of three reaches out to others. Again, fortified by love, joy, and peace. They're really kind of foundational, but long-suffering. And it's just that quality of forbearance under provocation. And sometimes the world will provoke us. Sometimes even believers will provoke us. But we can be long-suffering. We see that with Christ. It entertains no thought of retaliation even when wrongfully treated. Gentleness, well, again, it's that kindness, benevolence in action such as God demonstrated towards man. Since God is kind towards sinners, a Christian should display the same virtue as well. Goodness, well, it may be the thought of as an uprightness of soul and as an action reaching out to others to do good even when it's not deserved. And the last three that we have, again, the general conduct. Faith, well, we're told without faith it's impossible to please God. Faith isn't wishful thinking. And by the way, some people speak here, they think it's faithfulness. It's not faithfulness, it's faith that we're told. It's the assurance in our hearts that is put there by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're talking in Romans 5.5. 5, Hope makes not a shame because the love, again, notice the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Meekness makes a person who is submissive to God's word and who is considerate to, of others 
when discipline is needed. Meekness is not weakness. There's no when. It's translated gently and gentle in various other portions and gentleness. Temperance. Well, really, again, other translations will translate this as self-control. And it just donates kind of self-mastery. That's what one of the commentaries said. But I think surrender of self is probably a better way because, you know, we're never ever going to master ourselves in that sense. But it's through the Holy Spirit surrendering ourselves to Him. And this gift, this fruit combined, we find part of that fruit, a slice of that fruit is temperance. It primarily relates to curbing the fleshly impulses that we've seen already. All of that is the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's not mere moral or legal correctness. It's not that we are trying to obey a set of rules or anything now. You see, the position and manifestation of God's grace as seen in the fruit he places within us is summed up in this statement of Paul. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is really saying it's effortless to live as a Christian. When I realize that this fruit has been placed within me, that God has already counted me as righteous, all I have to do is walk in the Spirit. And we're told they that a Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. See, it's a settled thing. Literally, those who are of Christ Jesus, those who are his, need not be responsive to the sinful nature because they've crucified it. You see, it shouldn't even really be a challenge. It shouldn't be that we are tempted by these things of the world because the moment they present themselves, compared to Christ, they're nothing. And by the way, this idea of being crucified with Christ doesn't refer to self-crucifixion or self-mortification. You may have seen these pictures that sometimes we get around Easter time of people that actually go and crucify themselves or they have nails put through their hands. And certainly in some places around the world that actually happens. And they think that's pleasing to God. And sometimes they'll use this verse to justify it. Not at all. You see, we're free. We're, We're not bound by any law now. We don't have to do things to please Christ. There was nothing we could have done in the first place. But it's simply saying that we've put to death that old life. Why would we want it? Rather, it refers to the fact that by the means of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Christians are identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. So victory over the sinful nature's passions and desires has been provided by Christ in his death. Faith must continually lay hold of this truth or a believer will be tempted to try to secure victory by self-effort. And that is a danger for all of us. That we will try and overcome sin. That we will try and deal with temptation. You can't do it. I've tried. I've been there, I have tried, and I've failed. And I had to come humbly to God and say, Lord, I can't deal with this problem. And by God's grace, many years ago, there was one particular thing that I was struggling with. And God delivered me. Such an incredible, incredible deliverance. I had a friend. Over the years, I've had more than one friend. But this was one particular friend who grew up in the kind of the drug, sex, and rock and roll scene. He was a musician, and we ended up playing in a band together. When he became a Christian, literally overnight, he stopped swearing, he stopped drinking, he stopped smoking. He was radically changed. Now, people struggle to deal with those things and to change those things. But God just did a work in him through his spirit. And it doesn't have to be striving. If there's something you are struggling with, stop struggling because you will never deal with it. Just go to Jesus and ask for the grace. He'll do it. He's promised to do it. You see that work that he's begun in us? He said he's going to continue it. We're told if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. See, works of the old nature must be overcome by walking in the Spirit. We've seen that already. Being led of the Spirit and then living in the Spirit. See, we're saved by grace. We're justified by grace. We're kept by grace. And in the end, we're going to be transformed forever by that grace. It's all by grace. It's all by what Jesus has done. We can do nothing. We can add nothing. We're told that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. And then we're told, let us 
Not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. You know, the, the proverbial question that sometimes is asked is, well, as a Christian, is it okay to fill in the blank? People ask that question. It's never that question. It shouldn't be that. We should be saying rather, is it honoring to God if I do something? And what will be the fruit of it? You see, it shouldn't be a case of looking around the shop and looking at all the things and deciding which ones are actually quite like that. No, it's looking at, if I may use that analogy again, that one guitar and saying there is nothing better than that. You know, this is better than any instrument. This is looking at Jesus Christ and saying there is nothing better than Jesus Christ. And he's promising, has promised, to fill us with his Holy Spirit. If we're believers, inside you right now, God's Holy Spirit dwells. He said already, you are righteous. Not because of what you've done, because of what he's done. You're already righteous. You're already holy. Stop striving. Just go out and live this life rejoicing. Titus 2, let me just read the scripture. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly loves, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a great scripture. In closing, note that Paul uses three pleas as he pleads with them, beseeches his Christians to live lives of holiness by the grace of God. See, God the Father has called them, God the Son has died for them, and God the Holy Spirit indwells them. Each person of the Trinity involved in assisting us with this battle against the flesh. But you know what, that battle has already been won. We've just got to claim it, it's there. Let's bow our hearts. Father God, we just thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for what you have done. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that indwells us. We thank you for the fruit of your Spirit. And we pray that that fruit will be visible in our lives. By your grace, do that work in us. Lord, this morning I pray that if there's anyone here that is struggling with any one of those things of the flesh, anything that is pulling down, that is separating, that is causing a a problem regarding fellowship with other believers, that is causing a problem with relationship with you, Lord, I pray right now that that could be laid down, that no longer will we struggle with any of those things, realizing that we cannot deal with them, we cannot gain victory by our own effort. And we will realize that you've already done it. And we just now need to walk with you, with our eyes on you, and you will give us that victory that you've promised. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you. May we have such a love for you that nothing of this world we desire. Just Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.